In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder, have you ever eaten fresh homemade bread steaming hot coming right out of the oven? I know that baking homemade bread is a bit of a dying art these days. However, the tradition in my family, as far back as I can remember, was that every Saturday morning, my father and mother baked bread right from scratch. When all the ingredients, the flour, the salt, the milk, the yeast, and a touch of sugar were all mixed together into a thick, sticky dough and then kneaded, they were placed in greased and floured pans covered with a damp towel and left to rise. Then, at just the right moment, when the dough was billowing up to the, to the rim of the pans, the loaves were popped in the oven. When golden brown, they were pulled out, brushed with liberal amounts of fresh Wisconsin butter, left on the rack to cool just a bit, not too much though, and then cut into thick slices, really thick, buttered and spread with fresh raspberry preserves that my mom had made, the four Christian brothers, no, not the ones from California that make the wine, the four Christian brothers were allowed to eat one piece each in an eye-rolling, oh-so-good experience that I can visualize in my mind to this day and taste in my mouth as though it were yesterday. Who doesn't love fresh homemade bread? Oh, and the aroma that permeated the entire house. It lingered all day long. What can I say? Absolutely intoxicating. Well, bread, of course, has been a staple in the diets of people around the world since the very beginning of time. It's one of those simple luxuries that we have in life, isn't it? One that we can never seem to get quite enough of. In today's readings from the book of Exodus and from the Gospel of John, the children of Israel and the early followers of Jesus just couldn't seem to get enough of it either. And when they couldn't or didn't, what did they do? They complained. They grumbled. They murmured, first of all, to Moses and Aaron in the Sinai Peninsula, and then again to Jesus when they were on the Sea of Galilee. This morning, I'd like to take a look at both of these lessons that you heard read this morning, one from John's Gospel and the one from Exodus, and see if perchance we can find ourselves in the story, if we can relate to one of these two groups of people, or perhaps even both. First, let's take a look at the Old Testament reading from Exodus. Now, just prior to today's reading, the children of Israel had crossed through the Red Sea and made a camp at Elam, which was a, an oasis in the desert. Twelve springs, to be exact, for fresh water. And seventy palm trees, which provided a lot of shade for the scorching desert sun. Departing from Elam, they moved on into the desert of Sin. Yes, you heard right, that's the actual name of the desert. On their way to the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. Mind you... This was just one month, one month after they'd been freed from slavery back in Egypt. Now, long journeys in adverse conditions can often bring out the worst in people. If 
you've ever taken a long vacation, you know that. And this certainly was the case for these newly liberated children of Israel. The moment the Israelites reached the wilderness, the whole company rose up in complaint. They began to murmur, to grumble, to bellyache, to Moses and Aaron, saying, If only we had died at the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of the bread. I love that expression, if only, don't you? If only. Throughout my years of serving the homeless men at the Star Gospel Mission, I heard a lot of complaining, like, if only I'd finished high school. If only I'd gone to college. If only I'd not lost my job. If only I'd saved a little bit more money. If only I hadn't gotten hooked on drugs or alcohol. If only I hadn't committed the crime and done the time, maybe then, perhaps, maybe, I wouldn't be here at the mission. And I would always respond with the same answer, or the same statement, rather. Well, that was then. This is now. If not now, when? In other words, if not now, in terms of getting your act together, when are you going to do that? Why don't you start, begin, with replacing these two words, if only, with these two words, next time, if only, next time. Stop living in the past, start living in the present, and begin thinking about your future. Well, grumblings and if-onlys are a constant theme for the children of Israel, and for us as well. And they seem to come whenever we find ourselves in a wilderness experience in life. Whether that's going through a lengthy illness, struggling with a difficult, perhaps, an unsettling marriage, working through the boredom or discontent with an unsatisfying job, Experiencing some kind of a major financial setback in life. Or facing a challenging relationship with an estranged or obstinate son or daughter. Truth be known, our complaints are often less about our actual outward circumstances as they are about the inward condition of our hearts. Now, if we take a close look at Israel's attitude, it ought to serve as a warning to us against the sin of grumbling and complaining. The sin of grumbling and complaining. I call it a sin because when the Israelites complained to Moses and Aaron, what they were really doing was grumbling and complaining against God Himself. They continued to sin against Him. Psalm 78, which is the psalm for today, by the way, and I would commend it to your reading. Psalm 78, verse 17. They continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High God. In essence, what Moses and Aaron were saying to the people was, who are we that you should grumble and complain to us? The one you really are grumbling and complaining against is God. The word grumbling or murmuring in this passage doesn't really do justice to what the actual Hebrew word connotes or implies, which is an open rebellion. Or another translation is a mutiny against Almighty God. They were repudiating their relationship with God. In fact, here's what they said. 
You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In effect, what they were really saying was that they wished that they had never, ever been released from captivity in Egypt. They were a people whose cup always seemed to be half empty, not half full. They were a people who did not see life as a gift and despair as presumptuous. Why do I say that? You see, when we're in despair, and all of us have been there one time or another in our life, it presumes that the worst is yet to come. When in reality, under this huge, vast umbrella of God's grace, the best is always yet to come. The Israelites were caught up in life's if-only syndrome, reminiscing about how good it would be to be back in Egypt, back to the good old days, bound in slavery under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. Really? The compounding forces of time the harsh environment in the desert that they found themselves in, and a rather precarious and uncertain future had snuffed out the afterglow, yes, even the recent memory of their victory, their liberation, their freedom, their escape from Pharaoh and his army. Forgotten are the years of domination and enslavement at the hands of this despot. All they can remember now is that at least in Egypt, their bellies were full at the end of the day. If only, if only, if only. But God is patient. God is patient and promises to offer the Israelites consistent, predictable meals of manna in the morning and quail in the evening for their journey into the wilderness. I should say, for their 40-year-long journey into the wilderness, because that's how long they were going to be there. I will rain down bread from heaven, he promises. The people shall go out each day and gather a day's portion every day. Listen carefully. In this way, I will test them. I will test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they are to bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. This give us this day our daily bread, this gift from God, from the hands of His grace, was to be their staple until they finally reached Canaan, the promised land, the man, land flowing with milk and honey. God's test of Israel about gathering twice as much on the sixth day so that they could rest and not have to gather bread on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, means to stop, that is, to stop and rest, just as God rested after His six days of creation, was not so much a matter of whether they would follow His instructions as it was about whether or not they would trust and believe that God would provide enough for them so that they would not starve to death in the wilderness. If they were to hoard the bread, thinking that they might just run out, so they better save a little extra, it would spoil by the very next day. Hoarding was a sign of distrust, because it demonstrated a refusal to believe that God would do as He said He would do, namely, that He would provide for them. They wanted food, 
What did God do? He gave them food. In fact, He rains down food to their heart's content as much as they want. And that's the test. A simple test. As simple as asking, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with a strong and mighty arm? Who was it? Who safely brought you through the Red Sea and drowned all of Pharaoh's soldiers? Who conquered Pharaoh and his army? Who gave you fresh water and shade at the oasis in Elam? Oh, and by the way, who fed you just yesterday? Simple questions, but not for the Israelites. Not at this moment anyway, because at this moment, having just arrived in this wilderness, they were totally unimpressed by all the impressive yesterdays. In fact, they were so unimpressed that they longed to go back to Egypt under the backbreaking rigors of Pharaoh's slavery with three square meals a day. That's how unimpressed they were. So the murmurings and grumblings of the Israelites were a symptom of their lack of trust in God and in God's ability and faithfulness to provide for everything they needed while they were out there in the wilderness. And isn't that often a symptom of our grumbling and our complaining as well? That we lack trust, or as Jesus might say, O ye of little faith. We complain when things don't go our way. We complain when we don't always get what we want. We complain when we have less than others have. We complain when it's too hot, or when there's too much traffic, or too many tourists. When we want to have it our way, and we can't have it our way, we then become what I like to refer to as chronic complainers. Complaining all the time. Despite the people's constant grumbling and complaining, our Lord continues to take care of them, doesn't He? And despite whatever grumbling and complaining we might do, the Lord continues to take care of us as well. When we find ourselves in those inevitable wilderness passages in our lives, the most difficult test we encounter is to believe that God is exactly who He says He is. It's easy to allow our present problems to, to blind us from seeing and experiencing God's unfathomable grace. When we're experiencing stressful, uncertain, and unpredictable times, like those of the past year and a half perhaps, and like those now in the present, and who knows what the future holds, it's vitally important for us to allow, listen, the rhythms of our fellowship with God in our daily prayers, the study of God's Word, and our weekly fellowship with sisters and brothers in Christ as we worship in God's house. Yes, in this house. To bring order out of what sometimes seems to be utter chaos and utter confusion in our lives, yes, but also in the world. The key is to remember that just as with the children of Israel, where God was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night, they never traveled alone. God was always with them. And we never travel alone either. Through life, God is always with us.
His promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And unlike us humans, God keeps all of his promises. Well, now let's turn our attention, if you will, to the gospel reading, which you heard just minutes ago. Those who followed Jesus over to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Yes, I'm talking about the same ones that he fed the loaves and fishes to that we talked about two weeks ago from this pulpit. The 5,000 men, not counting women and children, suffered from the very same malady that the children of Israel suffered from. They were chronic complainers. Once they'd been fed, they followed Jesus everywhere he went. Why? Because they wanted more. Oh, they were eager and ready to accept the bread, all right, but they were not ready to accept the God who was able to give them that bread. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then they ask him this interesting question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what labor, what work is required of us to get some more of this wonderful bread you gave us? To which Jesus responds, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And still, all they could think about was how they were going to be able to get some more of this bread. Finally, the light in their minds went on when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. By feeding them, Jesus had demonstrated that he was the new and greater Moses. Moreover, providing them the loaves and the fishes was only the appetizer. The main course, the spiritual bread from heaven that gives life, that gives redemption and salvation to the whole world, was Jesus himself. Jesus knew that people's deepest needs are not physical, but spiritual. He knew that what we really need is for God to become an integral part of our lives, and when the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, We allow him to come into our hearts and lives. We will have everything we ever need. What all of us really need to satisfy our spiritual hunger is the bread of life, which only God can give. And that's not something we can work for. Not something we can earn. It's not something we can purchase. It's pure grace and unmerited, undeserved an unearned gift from God. Jesus provides us with the bread of life. Why? Because he is the bread of life. We feed on him as we study and grow in our knowledge of the word of God. We feed on Jesus as we communicate with him in prayer, and he communicates with us. And we also feed on him in a tangible way, in the bread and wine that we are about to receive at this table the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spiritual food for our hungering souls. 
Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, here in this life, we struggle until until we reach the promised land. No, not Canaan, but the new Canaan, heaven. The good news is that our entrance into that promised land, the land of light and joy, has already been purchased for us. It's already been won for us. We are given this abundant life by Jesus because He is the bread of life. In His suffering and death on the cross, He endured all the wrath of God which we deserve to incur upon ourselves because of our sins. He wandered. He hungered. He thirsted. He was tempted as we are, yet did not sin. And He suffered and died for us so that we might be forgiven and made His very own, purchased by His blood, the blood He shed at Golgotha on Calvary's cross once and for all, setting us free from the bondage and slavery of sin. Just think of it. Even while He was being nailed to the cross, He never grumbled. He never complained. Then, three days later, He rose from the dead, giving us a new and full forever life. A life freed from our slavery. Our slavery to sin. And released us from the shackles. The shackles of death, never to defeat us again. Well, like the bread my parents made every Saturday morning years ago, which for the Christian brothers was a real delicacy, and which had a lasting and intoxicating aroma lingering all day long throughout the entire house. So the bread and the wine of this meal, the one we're about to receive, this meal of thanksgiving and praise, fills this house with an even more powerful, more enduring, and more intoxicating aroma. One that I hope all of us will never be able to forget. One that I hope will keep bringing us back here to God's house week in and week out to feed on the bread of life. It's the bread we need the most. It's the one we cannot resist feeding on for the redemption and salvation of our souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You sent Your Son Jesus into this world to seek and to save the lost, to be the bread of life, the one who would take our sins with Him and crucify them to a cross, and by shedding His blood, give us the gift of forgiveness. And the hope, the promise, and the assurance, the certainty of everlasting life through His glorious resurrection from the dead. Father, give us this bread always. Help us not to be complainers in life, but help us to ever be thankful for all that we have, all that we are, our gifts from your great goodness and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.